0: 1st Timothy chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 through 8, the word of the Lord. Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ, not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Dear Father, we pray that you will lead us uh, into your truth this morning. Please bless us with um, understanding. Please bless us with encouragement. Please allow us to uh, come to a further understanding of your desire and come to a a greater unity of the faith. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm I'm excited to bring the scripture uh, to you today. Pastor Duff uh, was talking to me a couple weeks ago, and he... And he uh, suggested maybe I should come preach on the confessional county. And, and I said, well, I, I don't want to do that. <clears throat> Sorry, I'll throw it here. Um, I want to keep consistently preaching through Timothy. So this is our fifth sermon in Timothy. But as the Lord would have it, some of the topics we're going to talk about today are going to lead into that discussion. But the primary question today is, what does it mean that God desires all men to be saved? And what are we going to do about it? In this letter, Paul has been saying to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to stay true and focused. I don't want you to get distracted with fables. But rather, I want you to focus on love and a pure heart. And I want you to wage a good warfare a warfare of faith. And he gives Timothy a commission, and really it still extends to us today. So let's back up a little bit and look at chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, and let's read that. <clears throat> now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. That Jesus is reigning and that Timothy is to wage a good warfare provides the foundation for the therefore. In verse 1 of our passage today. So let's begin. If we are going to engage in this faithful warfare along with Timothy, the first thing, first of all, look at verse 1, first of all, prayers should be made. Last year, the Lord seemed to bring something of a revival to our prayer life here in the church. We've been praying more corporately together. We've been praying as a body more, and I think individually and families as well. This list of prayers that we see here, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks, these sound familiar to us because we've grown by God's grace and skill in praying. So Timothy, start with prayer, first of all. But who does Paul tell Timothy to pray for? Well, now we come to the phrase, all men. So let's talk about this. What does all men mean? What does the Holy Spirit here mean by all men? To begin, let's consider what all men means in everyday language. And we'll see that it really depends upon the context. Where's it being used? How are we using it? Let me give you an example. If we were to walk into Pastor Kaiser's library, just down the street here, And hadn't been there before, you might walk in and you might say, Wow, look at all these books. Y'all remember when we moved those books from the carriage house? I remember that. (laughs) I'm glad Brother Jeff brought that rolling thing that we put the books on. Anyway, if we want to think about the, the way all is used... It can be used in different ways. Look at all those books. doesn't necessarily mean to look at every single book. And this verse here, verse 1, pray for all men, there's 7.9 billion people in the world. And the types of men that we're supposed to pray, supplications, prayers, so obviously it doesn't mean that we pray for every single person in the whole world, right? All often doesn't mean every single thing in a certain set. Well, to help us figure out a little bit more, let's look at verse 1 and 2 together for a moment and try to ignore the verse break there. Just pretend it's not there. Timothy and the church is to pray for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. That's the way it flows. Now, if we were to categorize kings with a grammar diagram... We would find it to be a modifier or a descriptor of whatever this all is. We would see that this kings is a type, a kind of the all. Whatever all is for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority. Timothy is to pray for all men and specifically for kings. So all here in context means all types of people, one of which is kings. It's a specific example It's helpful for us to see what the Holy Spirit's purpose is. Now look at verse 4. Who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I was talking with Brother Bill last week, and uh, Bill has been fighting the good fight of faith, rubbing elbows with his Armenian brothers at the farm convention year after year. And uh, last week he got an email from his friend who is saying that Calvinism is a false doctrine because God desires all men to be saved. And I would not be surprised if this verse, 1 Timothy 2.4, is one of the verses of the proof text for that. It often is. But what does verse 4 say in context? We've already seen that all is a type. We should read the word all as having the same meaning in verse 1 and 2. It's from the same author, writing at the same time about the same thing. And that's the way God built language. There's a consistency to it. And actually, verses 1 through 4 are two back-to-back sentences. So if you say all and then say all again in the next sentence, we should assume the same meaning. So likewise, the all men that we see here in verse 4 also means All types of men. So essentially we have this. God desires all kind of men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Even kings. But this passage isn't over. The logic flow continues. This is the flow. God wants us to pray for all kinds of men. And kings are an important kind to pray for. He desires for all men to be saved. And now we come to verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, men, sorry, God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. We've been talking about the mediator a lot in our worship service today. But What this says, in all words, all men in every corner of the globe have one option if they want to get to God. There's not a bunch of gods that mediate between God and man. Not everyone can have their own God. That way of thinking is bad thinking. So Timothy, pray for all sorts of people in all positions and places because there's only one God in the whole world. And we are all under the same God. Remember verse 17 that we read earlier? Got that amen from somebody? Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. One God. Above verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all. Here we see God gave himself a ransom for all. <sighs> all right. Well, we might as well concede defeat to our Armenian brothers. Here he gave himself a ransom for all. So much for limited atonement, or a better phrase, so much for a particular atonement. But wait a minute. There's another verse. It sounds pretty... F- similar to this. And uh, any good navigator will know this verse. You'll have it memorized. It's Mark ten forty-five, and it says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Houston, we have a problem. The Bible is not supposed to contradict itself, but one verse says he died a ransom for all. The other verse says he dies a ransom for many. Well, we could go through many verses like this, and we could set them against each other, but we'd be dead wrong if we did that. That's a denial of God's character. God's Word doesn't contradict itself. So this supposed conflict is uh, resolved simply by understanding that words change meanings based on context and purpose. So 1 Timothy 2.6 and Mark 10.45 are 100% correct in their context and they do not contradict each other. We have to study and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us to His purpose. And today the Holy Spirit is helping set in our minds what all men means here. There's one more thing. There's one more four in this logic flow. If you were to look at all those fours, I think there are four fours, which is, by the way, a rather long logic flow for us today with our uh, Twitterized minds. We don't seem to have this long of attention span, but we need to keep going here. And I think this last one, this verse 7, really settles it. For which... I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul is making sure that Timothy understands something very important. He's speaking the truth and not lying. He's a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. A mystery is being revealed and this context of this historical context and time Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled what is that mystery well we can get a good hint of that actually in the same book let's look at 1 Timothy 3 chapter 16 let's look over there and read with me 1 Timothy 3:16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. With all these grand things, Jesus is now preached among the Gentiles. That's a big deal. Paul's convincing uh, Timothy that he... Paul, that is, is really and truly a preacher to the Gentiles. Remember that Timothy, to some extent, has his foot in two cultures. And up until this point, the Jews had a special status, and still do in some sense. Those of you who are firstborn children, you had a special status at one time. You were the only one. But then, oh boy. Here came a little brother or a little sister. And while that is wonderful, something has changed. And we know this from the parents' perspective. We know this from children's perspective. Yes, it's coming to you, Jared. Coming. Sometimes that's a little difficult to accept. That the Gentiles are being grafted in is a very important baseline context when we come to all of those verses on salvation that deal with all and world. That's a historical context. So when you see those, think Abrahamic covenant. That's coming to fruition. Think about the original audience in the scripture that that they are interacting with. So the all men in our passage means all types of men. Not every single person All types of persons. However, there is another all implied here, and it's all societies. God wants all societies to be saved. Now, this is a little different that God wants all types of men to be saved. God is not wanting to save all types of countries. Okay? If he he were, that would mean something like God wants some European countries and some big countries, some small countries, some Asian, some African. But he really wants all countries to be saved. Or better stated, I think he wants, well, the Bible says he wants all societies to be saved. And by the way, you'll, you'll hear me use the term societies um, often in place of nations. And why is that? Well, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but it's, it's because God not only sees nations as distinct civilizations, but he also sees states and counties and towns and really anything that has the family, church, and state together, any civilization. He considers that. So societies covers it all. But what are we talking about with the salvation of nations here? It's it's a little difficult to nail that down completely. I don't know that the Scripture is completely clear. There's a mystery there. I mean, what Pastor Kaiser uh, preached today from Jeremiah 23 is that all Judah will be saved. But I think we can also consider it a, a salvation of sanctification, of a, of a nation being set apart for God and receiving something of His blessing on earth. And specifically, I believe that in all of society, covenant with God is in mind with nations being saved. Israel, for example, was saved as a nation, blessed many times. But that does not mean that every single person in Israel was saved. Rather, it meant that there was a federal headship that acknowledged God, kept covenant with him. And we can see a hint of this salvation that God is desiring all nations to be saved in the same book 1 Timothy look at verse 4 sorry chapter 4 verse 10 1 Timothy 4:10 For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men especially those who believe We sing about this at Christmas time Joy to the world newborn king Jesus is reigning over the nations and, in a sense, the Savior of all men. But only those who believed are saved in a special sense. Let me read to you from a very important book. It's Messiah the Prince by William Symington. You need to get this book. If you haven't set your reading list for 2022, it's too late. I've got three or four of them for you that need to go to the top of your list. So... um, this is one of them, Messiah the Prince by William Symington, and then Explicitly Christian Politics. I don't like, really like the title because it's much deeper than Politics, and God and Politics, and this is by Gary Scott Smith, um, and really all you do need to do is just read one of these, but you'll get a better sense, I think, of this idea of Christ's mediatorial reign, and the nations being saved. Anyway, this book, Ma- uh, Messiah the Prince, it's it's older, so it's deep, but it's good, and it explains how Christ is ruling now, mediating His kingdom through vice regents on earth. Simeon is chocked full of quotes, but here, let me just go over one. Uh, he is talking about Revelation, verse twenty-one. No, chapter 21, verse 24 and 26. And then he goes on to say a few things. But l- let me uh, read to you Revelation 21, 24, and 26. You can turn there if you like. Revelation t- 21, 24, and 26. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Symington writes that these kings are to bring their honor and glory into the dominion of Christ. They are, and this is his quote, to subordinate their authority, power, revenues, and whole administration to the interests of Christ's kingdom. They also must be regarded as under the dominion of the mediator. And he also talked about this being in current time in history, not in eternity. Well, let's go back to our text for a minute. Let's look back again at kind of where we started. Verse 117. This is the foundation. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So Timothy is to pray for all men because God wants all types of men saved for he is reigning over the nations. And look again now at verse 5 for there is one God and one mediator between God and man the man Jesus Christ so the fact that kings are mentioned in this passage is important children when you're doing Bible study you might consider looking for themes and circling things that you see connecting verses together well ask your parents if you can write in your Bibles but It's a good thing to do. And if you did that here, you would see that kings is going through here and connecting this idea of all men being saved and kingdoms. God wants all kinds of people saved here in context. He wants all nations. And there's also a a concept uh, shown that backs this up in Revelation chapter 5. This is after Jesus has opened the scrolls. And the saints sing a new song. Go ahead and turn with me there. Revelation chapter 5. Let's look at that. Revelation 5 verse 9. And they sang a new song. Saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. People are saved out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Doesn't mean that all the nations are saved, but they're set apart to the Lord. And out of those nations, people are saved. Out of all of them. Out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Salvation, eternal, personal salvation is for all types of people. I hope you get this connection and distinction. Nations are saved, set apart for God, covenanted with Him. If they're doing the right thing. Why? Because there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ one mediator in the whole world. He's the savior of my, mankind, but he's especially the savior of those who believe. So what do we do? We're supposed to pray for all kings and all who are in authority. How do we do that? I like what they do uh, at Heritage Church down in Tennessee. Every Lord's Day before the service, they have a structured Categorized prayer, and they always pray for their leaders by name. That's important. When these things, let's turn back to First Timothy, chapter one. These things to pray for: supplication, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks. That means it's really good if we know the people. It's good to pray for policy. But we're commanded here to pray for people. And so I think that's a good way to do it. Also, when we interact with a civil magistrate, we should let them know their position according to God. And I try to do this when I write. I just give a little snippet that Christ is reigning. You're his vice regent. Please follow him. And, you know, I mean, it's an honorable thing. Call them to it. Well, that was the first half of the sermon. It's important for us to see that God wants all types of men saved. And he wants all nations saved. For this second half of the sermon, I want to circle back and focus on verse 2. Here we see the reason Paul wants Timothy to pray for all kings. We see the reason why God wants all kings to acknowledge him king Eternal. God doesn't always give us a reason when he gives us a command. But here he does. Look at it in verse 2. So that we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. It's practical. We are praying for the civil magistrates such that we are not set against them and not set against us. We want Christians, spirit-led men for our kings. But if not, we pray that God would turn their heads the right way so that they would not be set against us. Let me ask you a question. Are we living a quiet and peaceable life? Is our situation such that we can live quietly and peacefully? In one sense, yes. We're, We're in peace. We're not worried that we'll be drug off to prison like Pastor Wang Yi, we heard of last week, and I didn't know that his, his family is basically under house arrest. We don't have to, you know, very unlikely that this is going to happen for us. So in a sense, yeah, we're living a quiet and peaceable life. But what about those babies in the womb who are murdered in our land every day? Are they able to lead a quiet and peaceable life? What about the fact we are still restricted in so many ways because of this pestilence that has been with us for two years? We just had a family uh, cancel their visit uh, to come see us because they got the plague. I deal with it about once a week with my dad in assisted living. And at, at Christmas Eve... We're talking about vaccine mandates. Now, what's the cause of all this? The cause of the pestilence should be more of an issue to the church than than the things that are going on. And one of the main causes, not the only cause, but a foundational one, is that we have an uncovenanted civil magistrate. We haven't acknowledged God. Some say we in this country did it in the Mayflower Compact. Last year... Was the 500th anniversary of the Mayflower or 400th? I think it's a 400th. Thank you. 400th anniversary of the Mayflower Compact, and it was not a blip on our nation's conscience. God's laughing at us, holding us in derision, and He will until we kiss the sun. I'm convinced of that. If you read these books; I think you'll be convinced of it as well. So the quiet and peaceable life that we have, we do in some sense, by God's grace. He's, he's been good to us. It could be a lot worse. But it's, it's not all peaceful here. Look at the other phrase in this verse, um, verse 2. So that we may live our lives in all godliness and reverence. Godliness and reverence. One commentary said that godliness can be thought of as adhering to the first table of the law. And reverence, or if you look in your Bible, you'll probably see a note in the margin. Dignity is conduct towards our neighbor. Second table of the law. So in short, what type of life we're looking for is one, it's a Christian society where we are living according to the Ten Commandments. You know, do we have that? Let me tell you a story that's familiar to many of you, maybe all of you. A story about a society's relationship to its king, in this case, a queen, Mary Stuart, also known as Mary, Queen of Scots. She was the only surviving legitimate child of King James V of Scotland, She was six days old when her dad died and went to France. Spent her childhood there, grew up, got married. Her husband died. All this time, Scotland's been been ruled by regents. Well, on August 19th, 1561, she returned to Scotland to assume the throne. And that first Lord's Day, after her return to her native land, she wanted to take the Mass. John Knox writes this, Preparation began to be made for that idol, the Mass. Well, Knox and the other godly men didn't like this. They were going to intervene and not allow it to happen. But on that Lord's Day, a man named Lord John Stewart stood guard at the door. Ostensibly, he was there in order that he wouldn't allow any Scots to take the Mass. But they realized later, actually what he was there for is to keep the Scots out so that Queen Mary could take the Mass undisturbed. She did it. So what now? What do you do? What did the faithful Scots do? Some some said, why can't we let the king have our own religion? But the godly men knew that they couldn't do that. They knew that there would be trouble down the line if the queen were a practicing Roman Catholic. But mostly, mostly, they knew that idolatry would defile the land. We, We don't really think about that so much today. Were any of you kind of surprised at the catechism that we read today? I didn't know that was going to be in our, in our liturgy today. They used to think about that. They used to proclaim that because it was idolatry, and they're concerned about it. Knox writes this. One mass is more fearful to me than if 10,000 armies were landed in any part of the nation. He was not primarily concerned about persecution. His primary concern was that the land would be defiled and that they would come under plagues. Well, the following February, the queen went on a tour around Scotland. And Knox categorizes this, and he goes name by name through the towns, every town that was defiled by her practice of religion. He had good reason to believe this. He believed that the Old Testament curses and blessings still applied, and particularly here, that God makes no allowance for public idolatry and punishes societies for it. Well, a little later, Queen Mary was given a Bible at something of an inauguration ceremony. It was passed to her. She didn't want it. Passed it on to her papist um, captain of the guard. Knox wrote this. Edinburgh, since that day hath reaped as they sowed. Notice what he says. It wasn't that the queen reaped as they sowed. It wasn't that just that some segment of society. Edinburgh reaped as the queen sowed. has been the same since, he says. Okay, back to our text. Let's look at verse 2. Actually, don't look at verse 2. Just listen to verse 2. I'm going to misread it. And I want you to, to see if you can catch it. Okay? Remember, no peeking. This is the verse we're talking about, the reason that, that Paul wants Timothy to pray, that God wants us to pray for kings. For kings and all who are in authority, that all may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Okay? I'll give you another chance. I'll misread it again. For kings and all who are in authority, that all may lead... A quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Did you catch it? I replaced the personal pronoun we with all. Essentially, I made it so that everyone, no matter your belief, can lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. I Americanized it. Okay, so again, this is what it really says. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. I agree with Joe Moorcraft. He preached on this verse. And he said that the we means the church. We means the people that he's talking to here, the ones that recognize King Eternal. That Christ came, lived a perfect life, suffered, was buried, rose again, and ascended. That's the we. And I agree with him. Joe Moorcraft said that there is a great heresy, a common heresy in our land today. And this is it. That God allows everyone to worship as they see fit. In this view, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Romanists, Satanists are provided equal protection and opportunity. This is the right to freedom of religion. But nothing could be further from the Bible. Nothing is more important to God than worship. Nothing is more clearly laid out than the first four commandments that all nations have to worship him, according to what he says. Now, For the framers of our Constitution, there was an understandable reaction to the abuses of the official religion of the government of England, okay? And in some sense, what they set out for freedom of religion is not what we are thinking today. But the question is, does the Bible give a right to freedom of religion such that everyone can worship according to their own conscience? And if not, should we have that? I'm not talking about true freedom of conscience. The the, uh, confession talks about this. Only the Lord is the one to bind the conscience. There's a true and good freedom. But the freedom of religion in the modern application is religious pluralism. And this makes God very angry. Knox and his men knew this. And by the way, The Roman church is more idolatrous today than during Knox's day. I want to ask again, do we today have a quiet and peaceable life? And do we have a life such that we are living with all godliness and reverence? The covenant approach, which I believe is the most biblical approach to society that I've ever found, is that we are in this together as a society. And so what the society does, and specifically what the kings do, is not an issue that we can drive by on Sunday morning or Tuesday afternoon. A good question to consider, which is better? Having strife like they had almost 500 years ago in Scotland, where those who want to practice idolatry are pitted against the Reformed church, or having passive peace as we do today? It's not conflict, really. We think of peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now, I want to talk about land curses briefly. And this relates somewhat to the confessional county. When I was working through that doctrine, I saw a discontinuity between the way the Reformed churches of the past used to think about societal land curses, and how we think about it today. And I wasn't really sure if I had this right. Because I just haven't seen it. We're not focused on it. Um, a number of people have asked me questions about this. And I think rightly so. Uh, are you overemphasizing this? Do you, do you have this right? Well, I I ran this by a number of men who were qualified to deal with it. I'm not qualified to deal with a question like that. Four of these men that I I ran all that by, in my opinion, are the most godly men and some of the most skilled scholars in our nation today, at least in our circles of reconstruction and, and theonomy. To a man, they all said it was accurate. I spent a lot of time, for example writing and talking to the moderator of the RPCNA denomination because they've got a good covenantal understanding. And I wanted to be sure he understood what I was saying. Particularly, what does it mean for today? How do they hinder progress? Who's responsible? How how do we get out of them? Um, So there's backing for that. And I think that's helpful. That's good, but it's not sufficient. Only the Bible is sufficient. And so that's why I want to exhort you. I want you to study. I just exhort you to study this doctrine yourself and see if land curses apply to you today, where you are, how they apply, where they apply, how to get out of them. You can look at the things that I've I've written. Maybe the, the best thing to do is, uh, In the back of my book, I have an index that just lays out the doctrine and the scripture for it. Maybe just go there. Just read the scripture for yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. It's just important. I mean, I think it's important for us and for our children to realize where are we according to God. Well, in closing, I want to give two practical exhortations. Two practical exhortations. I think we can take encouragement that verse 2 says not only kings but all who are in authority. This means that lesser magistrates are acknowledged by God as legitimate and as people who can make a difference in our lives. We pray for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life and, and all godliness and reverence. So, um, even if you can't talk to the president, you have something to do. I hope that's encouraging to you. The confessional county is one way to do this. Um, And one of the things that I've realized in my time in the the military uh, is that there are a lot of different ways of doing things. And these principles apply. I don't, quite know how to crack the nut for an urban environment, but when I've been talking to William Cohen, I think he may have some ideas. So I'm, I'm not saying that everybody needs to go to a confessional county to get out of land curses, but I am asking you to consider it, pray, pray about it, look at the, the, the doctrine of land curses. And realize, and be encouraged, that there are kings and lesser magistrates wherever you are. Big societies, small societies, and they're all subject to God's desires. Secondly, in verses 1 and 2 of our passage today, which is just really just one sentence, God gives us a tangible, workable doctrine of prayer. Those prayers that are listed in verse 1 are the instruments that God uses to create the effect in verse 2. We need to be reminded that prayer really works. And here it says that prayers for kings and lesser magistrates actually changes our lives, changes the lives of everyone. And why is that? What's the driving factor behind The fact that these prayers are fulfilled god says they will be it's this if we pray according to god's will then we are praying according to god's desire if we're praying according to god's will we're praying according to god's desire what he wants and guess what god always gets what he wants that's the underlying logic behind prayer. Pastor Duff is going to preach on the Great Commission next, next week. I won't be here. I, I hope to listen to it. I just want to add one, maybe give one thing as, as we go forward, is that we can have great confidence that God answers prayer and that he wants all men of all types to be saved. He wants all nations to be saved. And so I just, uh, I'm thankful for this challenge and this doctrine that comes to us in the scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we've seen that you desire all men to be saved. And I thank you for uh, showing us what you mean by that. I pray that you will help us in our evangelism, that you will um, give us confidence as we go forward in prayer Father I pray that we will consider whether or not we are in a situation where we have the ability to live a quiet and peaceable life to live a life in all godliness and reverence to work for this for our generations after us and really to work for this because you are the king eternal you are Immortal. You are invisible. You are the only wise God. And you're the one that's deserving of all of our honor and glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.